here. Whatever. Oopsie daisies. Boop, 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 boop. Okay. My man. Okay. Anywho, let's uh, let's get this party started, shall we, Jeff? Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Cheap Talk. My name is Jeff Kaplow. I'm an assistant professor of government here at William & Mary. And joining me, as always, is my esteemed colleague, Marcus Holmes. Hello, Marcus. Hi, Jeffrey. How are you doing? I'm doing well. That's great. Uh, today, what I thought we could do was maybe go through some of the questions that have accumulated over the, the last season of Cheap Talk. We're sort of like towards the end of the season, or at least the end of the academic semester, and so we're kind of at a, uh, or academic year for that matter, wrapping it up kind of feel to to what's what, what's going on in the academic world. So maybe we should try to like, you know, tie some loose ends together, things that we've talked about in the past, kind of bring some closure to some of these things. Yeah, I think, I think that's a good, a good plan. I mean, this is probably gonna be the last show of the academic year. Um, and so, uh, you know, for those students who are listening to this, because I told them that they have to, this is probably the last episode that, that we're going to have. And so it's a good chance to, to answer some of those questions that, that have come up. And you've been teasing one of these questions for the last couple of episodes. And that's a question about the first image of the state. And so Alex from Eugene, Oregon asks, one topic to discuss could be the implications that social identity theory has for international relations, if any, and particularly for rogue states like Russia, North Korea, and Iran. If constructivists think that states are people, then I would assume that social psychology theories like social identity theories could be applied. So I'm curious about the thoughts that Professor Holmes and Professor Kaplow have about this. And let me just say that to Alex, uh, I appreciate your generosity in including me in this question because I'm not sure I do have any thoughts about this. But I was just going to say, I too am curious what <laughs> Professor Kaplow is going to say about this. This is great. <laughs> but because this, this question uses a number of words that I do not recognize. And so I thought right. uh, maybe, Marcus, you can kick us off by explaining what social identity theory is. Okay. I'd be happy to do that, Professor Kaplow. So um, social identity theory is uh, a sort of psychological set of theories or group of theories that try to understand how uh, people, human beings, individuals sort of uh, understand themselves, the identities that they that they have. And it goes back to um, some Nobel Prize winning work in the 1970s that basically argued that human beings, you know, have a couple of, of sort of needs. Um, one of those needs is to sort of categorize ourselves, uh, not just in relation to like, you know, I'm Marcus or you're Jeff, but categorize ourselves in a way that we can relate to other people, right? So one of the ways that we might do that is we say, okay, I'm, I'm categorizing myself as a professor, you're a professor, we together then are part of this identity group, we both identify as professors, and so we kind of see each other as part of an identity group that we belong to that we share and so this is is if you can think of it this way we're part of this similar kind of in-group as, as psychologists talk about um, and we have lots of different in-groups right so we also have an in-group at William and Mary we're both professors at William and Mary we are part of an in-group of of professors who study international relations and so you can think about this we, we both like baseball I think you like baseball I do maybe that's not true you kind of like baseball I do like baseball yeah, you do like baseball. So we're another... The, the problem I have is my, my team is the Detroit Tigers, and so... Oh, right. That's right. You know, I, I can't be too open about my love of baseball. If I were you, I probably would not like baseball. But in any event, the, the point here is really that part of our sort of psychological needs is to be... Uh, to see ourselves as part of groups. Like we, if we're in a group, it makes us feel good. We, we have a sense of belonging. You know, we just like... We're, we're sort of social group creatures, right? 
the next step of this is once you have this uh, sort of group-based you know, mentality or identity, the question becomes under what conditions are we likely to then see uh, sort of either violence or you know, some type of, of outward uh, view of other groups that is not particularly favorable. One of the things that social identity theory suggests is that we're going to basically compare ourselves to other groups, right? So in, in the example that we're using before, we're William and Mary professors, you know, that's our in-group. An out-group might be, you know, professors that work at, not to, you know, talk about a school you know, in particular, like negative light, but, you know, professors at Dartmouth, for example, might be another, another group, right? We have the out-group uh, of uh, professors at, at Dartmouth. Or we might view ourselves as having an in-group of international relations scholars, and we have American politics professors represent another uh, type of group. There's a tendency, I think, for a lot of people to kind of compare your group to the other group. And in some cases, you you prefer to have your, your in-group be the better one, right? So we like to think of our whatever in-groups we have as being the kind of superior one and the out-group being the one that's less, you know, relevant uh, and and not not as good, right? If you're a Red Sox fan, of course, the out group for you is like the Yankees. You clearly hate the Yankees. You think they're worse. You think that everybody that is a Yankees fan is just you know stupid or whatever. So there's a certain level of of not necessarily hatred uh, towards the out group, but it could be. But at least comparing yourselves in a less favorable light vis-a-vis uh, -vis that group. So this is a sort of set of theories that now has you know over the last fifty years basically gone in lots of different directions. In international relations, one of the ways that this is used is to try to understand or maybe predict when we're likely to see violence between uh, two different groups. So uh, one area where social identity theories use is like in, in genocide studies, for example, and trying to trying to get at what are the predictors of, you know, domestic violence, civil violence in countries where you might think that a genocide is, is possible. And there they look at things like how strong the in-group identity is, how much hatred there is in the out-group identity, uh, what is the level of attachment to the, the, the nation that one has, and so on and so forth. Right? So there's lots of different ways of thinking about this. But that's very much at the level of groups and group behavior. By the way, uh, to understand social identity theory, one, one of the things you could do is if you go on YouTube or, or Google, look at, um, I think they're called like minimum group paradigm experiments where they basically, you know, go into a room of people and they're like, you know, okay, guys, you guys are blue. You're the blue team. You're the red team over here. And they have then people, you know, do experiments with these, these sort of minimal difference groups. The only difference being you basically said you're blue and you're red. And you, they do these experiments like, you know, have economic exchange games and cooperation games. And it turns out that people uh, in the blue group, for example, will often cooperate more with people in their group than with people in the red group. Or if it's an economic thing, they're going to be more willing to give money to people in their own group versus people in the, in the out group. And... You might think to yourself, this is kind of ridiculous, and it, it's from a rational perspective, it is. I mean, somebody just walked in and said, you're blue and you're red. It should make no difference whatsoever. But I think it kind of speaks to the power of some of the psychological uh, processing that, that's in play. So you can imagine if this happens with minimal differences between groups, something where there's something that's actually a salient difference, like some historical wrong, or maybe that the, the in-group and out-group is based on religion and religious differences and thinking about, you know, the, the role of, of, you know, God in your life or whatever the case might be, then it might be particularly salient. So we see these differences in sort of like very minimal kind of made up stuff. And that implies, I think, that they're going to be super uh, powerful potentially when it comes to things that people do actually care about. So anyway, so this is normally typically applied to kind of groups of people within states, right? You want to understand when there might be violence, et cetera. So you can think about it in terms of like groups of people within, within different countries. But there's also been a movement to say, well, wait a second. 
if these properties uh, apply to people, human beings, individuals, why is it so far-fetched to think that they couldn't apply uh, to states? Why is it uh, so far-fetched to think that, you know, maybe a country like, let's say, France, maybe a country like Germany might, too, have the same pull to have in-group favoritism and maybe out-group, uh, whatever the opposite of favoritism, right? Where we're, we're going to, you know, sort of hate on the out-group or whatever. Um, so, for example, some people have argued that the European Union... Um, you can understand its existence from lots of different perspectives. You can say, well, one of the things that they needed was a common you know, economic policy, and so that's why the EU exists. Or maybe one of the things you would say is we need a common defense, and so that's the way the EU exists or the reason exists. But another perspective that's more social is to say what the EU did was it, it sort of brought together groups of states that had a, a like-minded European identity, right? And they said, we're going we're gonna to sort of build upon this. We're going to strengthen that in-group. And the idea is that if we can cultivate an in-group that includes everybody that has this European identity, then you're less likely to have violence moving forward because you're all part of this same identity group. You're all on the red team. So that is one sort of way that this has been used to go from just individual people, human beings, to, to the state. Now, the last thing I'll say about this, Jeff, is of course, there are lots of people who would argue you can't take a psychological theory that applies to individuals or maybe groups of people and say states have the same exact psychology, right? States don't have brains, states don't have minds, and you just can't do that. And so this is where we really get into this, you know, sort of philosophical debate that we've we've touched on uh, before, which is what attributes or dispositions or processes of individuals are we comfortable with applying to states? Are we comfortable saying that the United States has a particular identity or, you know, Israel has an identity or Japan has an identity? And if, if we are, that's great. But if we're not, what, what are we basically saying? Are we saying that we can't attribute psychological theories to, to the state at all? Can we even talk about Japan as being a corporate actor? Right. We often use language like Israel does this or Sudan did this or whatever. We speak of of countries, of states as if they were individuals, as if they were corporate entities. Uh, and so therefore, it might make sense to apply some of the things that we would apply uh, to corporate entities, to individuals, to their, their behavior as well. But a lot of people aren't comfortable with that. So this is this is becomes the sort of uh, a dividing ground between people who want to apply psychological theories that normally would be applied to human beings and, and groups to the state, something that we call the state, which is, you know, basically an entity upon which you can attribute human-like types of behavior. So that, that's really helpful, Marcus. But I, I guess my question is, you know, you talked in previous episodes about how you think of the state as a person. And I, I'm not entirely clear on why you need to make that step for something like social identity theory to be useful. Because, I mean, if the people of America, of the United States, are subject to this kind of idea of in-groups and out-groups, you know, in a psychological way, then the fact that the public thinks a particular way about something is relevant information for how the state, a separate entity, would behave. So do we have to consider the state to be an individual in order to apply these kinds of theories? Or is it enough to say that the population is subject to these kinds of uh, psychological theories and the population itself has some control over the policy of the state? I think this is this is the crux of the issue. If it's the case that the population is subject to social identity theory or leaders are subject to, so, to social identity theory because they're, they're human beings, the question is how do we go from that to something that we talk about as state behavior, right? So 
it might be the case that you're you're comfortable saying, well, state behavior is you know determined by the head of state, right? So Joe Biden basically is the United States for all intents and purposes, and whatever psychological stuff is going on in his head is basically you know going on for the United States as well. But if you if you interrogate that a little bit, that's not really true, right? I mean, the decisions that the United States makes on a day to day basis are certainly informed by what, you know, Joe Biden has to say, but they're also informed by all kinds of other things, like you just mentioned, like what people, you know, in Richmond, Virginia think, and like what the polls say, and what the military thinks. And for some states, this is actually a real problem, where, you know, the head of state and the military might not be on the same page. And so the question is, you know, well, who is making the decision then? In other words, it's hard, I think, to reduce state-level decision-making to a particular person or to a particular group of people within a state. It's just too complicated, right? And so if you can't reduce it to something that's that's kind of lower, uh, then the question is, well, what, what do we do? Well, the answer for a lot of people is just to say, okay, the state then is a person that's got all kinds of complications. Like, Jeff, you're a very complicated individual. I am. I'm a complicated individual. You sometimes probably have conflicted uh, uh, desires and, and preferences, and you know what? sometimes you might not know what to do. And if I said to you, Jeff, why did you make this particular decision? Sometimes you might even say, I'm actually not even all that sure why I made that decision. I'm not sure why I, I, I have this particular preference or th that particular preference, right? And so people like me look at states and it's very similar, right? You can't kind of reduce the the state, the, 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 the United States to something that's so easy to, to pinpoint and say it's this person or it's this group. It's just way more complicated than that. And individuals are, are complicated. And so I think for us, we're, we're comfortable saying it's not the case that, that uh, the United States is a human being. We recognize it doesn't have a brain like we do. It doesn't have feet. Uh, I mean, I guess, you know, but it, it doesn't have like the things that we normally associate with human beings, but it is an entity, a corporate entity that we can attribute human-like behaviors to for the reasons we talked about. Is this a way to make analysis simpler or is this like a sincere belief on the part of the theorists who see the state as a human being? I mean, I, 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 I guess I'm not getting my head around whether this is just kind of an analytic shortcut. Like instead of going through the process of saying, okay, well, all these individuals have their own beliefs and then there's some aggregation me method that takes those beliefs and turns it into policy. Well, let's just cut out the middleman and assume that Joe Biden is the state or, or whatever. Mm -hmm. is, is that what's going on here? I think for most, um, most people who adopt this view, I think it's, it's for the analytical uh, perspective, right? Because you, you hit the nail on the head, right? There is no clean way or even a messy way to aggregate all of the stuff that's going on within the state to, to be able to say, like, OK, I can explain, you know, this this behavior. But with these like 400 variables that all have different values and like I have this like master sort of like way of understanding. This. That's just that's just impossible. We, we can't do that. So one sort of set of people, one group of scholars would say, all right, so I'm going to make the analytical move to say. I don't have to worry about all those various, you know, 400 variables. Like I can simplify things considerably by conceiving of the United States or, or France as uh, an individual in the same way I would explain individual level level behaviors uh, in like economics, let's say. Right. So like in microeconomics, you learn about like supply and demand and why people buy, you know, certain goods and this and that. Well, they don't they're not sitting there like dissecting the, the human brain and trying to figure out exactly like why it is that people are motivated by supply demand dy dynamics. They just look at the behavior and they say, see, this, this is simple enough. Right. So analytically, it does make sense to make this move where you say, look, we're going to say that human beings for all intents and purposes are individuals. And it makes our life simpler because then we have to worry about all this stuff 
that's kind of complicating matters. But I think there's another group of people, the sort of more hardcore kind of constructivists and, and sociological folks, who would say, actually, it's not just a metaphor, right? That, that, that is something about personhood that applies to states in a more profound way. And these are people who are likely to say, you know, that th- through various collective processes, the United States does have uh, emotion. And we've talked about this before. Like, this, is, it, is it reasonable to say the United States, like, has emotion? Or the United States has, even some might say, like, consciousness, right? The United States is making decisions in a conscious way, not unlike the way you make decisions, the way I, I make decisions. We don't completely understand those processes, but the United States is, is operating as a collective conscious kind of kind of entity. Um, that's kind of the more hardcore uh, version that I don't think you know uh, the majority of folks subscribe to, but certainly a lot, a lot do. I think for most, it's it's about making this kind of analytical move where we can't reduce everything to the head of state, we can't reduce everything to joint chiefs, we can't reduce it to anything, and so the question is, well, what are we left with? And what we're left with is thinking of the state as an individual, which which can help us, you know, kind of make progress in understanding why states do what they do. So in this question that we got from Alex. He asks about rogue states like Russia, North Korea, and Iran. How does social identity theory help us kind of understand the behavior of these, quote, rogue states? That's a really good question. If, if you adopt a view that one of the problems, and we're, let's just you know, use sort of like broad brushes here, right? Like the United States and, and the so-called West, you know, Western Europe and, and you know, Western powers, if you adopt a view that one of the problems with let's say North Korea or Iran, is that they haven't been sort of socialized into the international system in the same way that a lot of other states have. You might, you might think about social identity theory and saying, look, this makes complete sense to me why in Iran or North Korea might be fearful of the outgroup as they see it, which is, you know, the West. Like basically you have a country or a couple countries in this, in this example that have a very strong attachment to themselves. They have, a, they have an in-group, if you will. But that out-group is so strong and that out-group is so antagonistic from their perspective that it's very hard to not see this relationship as one of, of being like, they're the out-group that's trying to get me. You know, not everybody looks at North Korea and why they want um, a you know nuclear weapons from the defensive perspective. But I think if you're a social identity person, it's easy to see why you might might come to that conclusion. You say, like, these are these are a group of of uh, decision makers that would like to be comfortable and would like to to put away their fears that the West or the United States is not one day going to try to you know take out their their regime. But they they can't do that because at the moment we are to them this strong out group that continues to say we are not going to integrate you into Western institutions. We're going to deal with you as if you're a problem. We're going to have maybe a summit with you. We're going to try to convince you to take away your nuclear weapons and so on and so forth. But that's never going to happen until they feel comfortable that they are part of this in-group that we we belong to, right? So from a socialization perspective, social identity theory might help us to understand, number one, how they got those identities as rogue states and so forth uh, to begin with, but also what the core problem is. Why is it that North Korea, you know, sounds and feels so defensive? Right. What is what's going on there? And part of it, I think, is, is explained by this identity. Now, of course, that's not the only explanation. We have lots of different explanations for why they feel threatened. We need to go back to the Korean War. We have military exercises that we you know do in the region, all that kind of stuff. So there are like material reasons for them to be fearful of us as well, uh, not to mention history and the, you know, the, the, the United States invading you know, countries that it views as problem countries like Iraq that we talked about last time 
in order to rectify that situation. It's not irrational for them to be fearful of us. But I do think there's a psychological element that can get at, you know, a little bit of where that that fearful uh, emotion might be coming from. The other thing I'll say, too, uh, and this wasn't in the question, but I think is uh, some somewhat implicit, is that these identities and and the roles that states have become very ingrained uh, over time. Right. I mean, it's if you, as I sit here right now in 2023, it's hard to imagine a situation where North Korea would be sort of like adopted into the in-group of the sort of like Western, you know, powers. And that we'd have, you know, North Korea being a full-fledged, you know, participant in all of the institutions uh, that a France or a Germany or the United States are, are engaged in, right? It just, it seems so, so foreign of a, of a concept. And I think that's partially because of the sort of reality on the ground and what the views of, of leadership in North Korea are and all that kind of stuff. But it's also, I think, just one of the realities of social identity theory, which is like their, their identity seems so different than ours. And they, it seems like such a, a rogue state in the sense of like not wanting to participate uh, in international relations in the same way that other states do, that you could see how this would be very difficult to, to overcome. And sometimes these, these identities become so hardened uh, it, it almost becomes like a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? You have these, these groups of, of states that, you know, are, are antagonistic to one another, or you have like, you know, the Israel-Palestine, you know, situation a lot of people describe this way. It's, it's a problem of trying to understand land, uh, you know, where we draw lines and, and who gets what, but it's also an emotional and very much like an identity conflict as well. And, and it's hard to imagine a, a, the conflict being completely resolved when those emotional and identity differences are still, are still there. So I think these, these identities are, are very, can be very sort of like difficult to, to crack through and represent a real hard problem uh, for international relations. Okay, let's try another question. Uh, so this one is from Catherine from Eureka, California, who asks for our views on the U.S. providing increased nuclear assurance to South Korea to keep them from building their own nuclear capability. What will be the impact on North Korea? Maybe I'll give a little bit of background on this one. This is news today as we record. So we're recording on Wednesday, April 26th. At the moment, South Korea's president is part of a big South Korean state visit to, to D.C., visiting with Joe Biden. And so this is a part of the announcement that came out of that meeting, all the new initiatives between these two great partners, the United States and South Korea. And this visit comes at a little bit of an awkward time for, for U.S.-South Korea relations. We talked last time about the, the leaks on Discord of, of U.S. intelligence. Some of those leaks suggest that the U.S. has intercepted uh, communications between South Korea's like, top leaders on the National Security Council. And so that's a little bit awkward. This is one of those those situations spying where... Spying on allies. Spying on allies, which, you know, happens and everyone knows it happens, but it's still a, an awkward conversation the next time you meet up. And then this is all kind of in the context of South Korea not being willing to provide material assistance in terms of weapons assistance to Ukraine as part of its policy of not aiding combatants to an ongoing conflict. And so South Korea has provided humanitarian aid to Ukraine, but hasn't given weapons directly to, to Ukraine. And this has been an issue. The United States has tried to push South Korea to do this, that maybe uh, South Korea could sell these weapons to Poland or the United States, who could then pass them along and allow South Korea to say, well, we didn't give them directly to Ukraine as a way of, of getting 
mostly uh, artillery shells and ammunition to Ukraine, which is what they really need, which is what South Korea can provide. So this is kind of the context of the visit. But a big topic whenever South Korea and the United States meet is North Korea and what to do about North Korea. And so a couple of announcements that came out of this are around nuclear uh, reassurance to South Korea. Um, and so it looks like the United States will allow for the first time South Korea to be involved in kind of strategic planning around the use of nuclear weapons. So in the case of a conflict with North Korea, there would be some kind of mechanism for consultation with South Korea or setting up kind of a joint plan for the defense against a nuclear attack or the use of nuclear weapons in retaliation for a North Korean strike. And this is something that is kind of similar to how NATO is set up. Um, even though the the alliance with South Korea is kind of on a, a different um, different level than the alliance in NATO, but it, it's a, kind of along the same lines that we're going to involve this ally in U.S. strategic planning, which is something that um, kind of hasn't been done in the past. There's also a part of this agreement uh, where the U.S. is going to have nuclear armed submarines docking in South Korea for the first time in uh, 40 years, it looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is also a kind of a way of reassuring South Korea about the U.S. support for it in the face of North Korea's nuclear threat. Now, South Korea has recently made statements, recently in the last like year, made statements hinting at a potential interest in nuclear weapons. This comes up every so often among South Korean officials, um, and then they kind of walk it back. And it's a way of keeping the United States focused on the alliance and reassuring South Korea. South Korea occasionally says, yeah, maybe it wouldn't be so bad if we develop nuclear weapons. Maybe we should have that capability in the future if North Korea is going to go in this direction. But And then they back off of it a little bit uh, when when it kind of draws some, some attention from U.S. policymakers. Another element at play here is the view of the South Korean people, which in polling is strongly supportive of South Korea developing nuclear weapons to counter North Korea. And so Biden administration officials have said one of the targets of this kind of an agreement is reassuring the South Korean people that the U.S. has their back, thus taking a little pressure off of South Korean leadership when it comes to thinking about their own nuclear weapons deterrent against North Korea. This whole thing is a kind of a little bit of a tightrope walk for the Biden administration, because on the one hand, good idea to reassure South Korea, right? You want you want South Korea to feel comfortable in the alliance and feeling that the U.S. will support them in the case of a nuclear conflict, thus removing their incentive to develop nuclear weapons on their own, which creates a whole host of problems. And so I think that's an important goal. Uh, But at the same time, any kind of agreement like this runs the risk of centering U.S. nuclear weapons in its foreign policy, of making them seem more important in U.S. foreign policy, and a longstanding goal of Democratic administrations has been to de-emphasize the role of nuclear weapons in U.S. foreign policy. So this is a big, big goal of the Obama administration. It's something that the Biden administration has tried to continue to do. But I think it's finding that these goals are in conflict, right? It, with the idea of trying to de-emphasize your nuclear weapons in foreign policy has the effect of making your allies worry that you won't be there for them if it comes to a nuclear exchange. And so the allies don't mind a little emphasis on nuclear weapons and U.S. foreign policy. And that's kind of where this all came out. Uh, So, you know, one of the things that could have been agreed to here would have been to put U.S. tactical nuclear weapons in South Korea, which is something that South Korea has called for in the past and that some uh, kind of U.S. defense analysts have called for. 
we haven't had U.S. nuclear weapons in South Korea since the end of the Cold War, since 1991, when they were when they were withdrawn. But uh, some have called for them to come back as a way of helping to deter North Korea. And that could have been something that was agreed to here, but it wasn't. And so I think that that's an important piece of the story as well, that we will not be stationing nuclear weapons in South Korea. And so the Biden administration is trying to draw this line um, of doing something to reassure South Korea without going too far uh, in, in terms of emphasizing nuclear weapons in, in U.S. policy. And one kind of upshot of all this is it's very antagonistic to North Korea in the sense that, like, North Korea is going to look at this and be like, no, you know, this is not good news for anything that that emphasizes the U.S. nuclear deterrent is seen by North Korea as a provocation. And so you can expect a kind of angry North Korean response, missile test or two, maybe even a nuclear test, um, something to show that they're not going to just take this. But ultimately, uh, you know, I think the calculus is that this doesn't lead to like an appreciable increase in the risk of a conflict here, but does go a long way toward toward reassuring South Korea. Uh, my, you know, take on this, you know, just to, to preview the title of my op-ed that I'm that I'm definitely <laughs> going to write about this. And are we co-authoring that, or is that a single solo-authored? Uh, it's uh, it's but me and Chat GPT are going to take care of this uh, okay. as soon as the podcast is over. Saving the NPT one nuclear agreement at a time. That's that's my title. And what I what I like about this is that reassurance, nuclear reassurance for South Korea has a big global impact in the sense that anything we can do to prevent South Korea from hinting at a nuclear nuclear development, from building up a latent nuclear capability, all of those things are very damaging to the global regime that tries to prevent the spread of nuclear weapons. And so, you know, I have a book on this, Marcus, where I talk about how there's some precedent setting here that's really dangerous, that if South Korea moves down the path toward nuclear weapons, everyone has less confidence that the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty and the other parts of the international nuclear regime, everyone loses confidence that that stuff is working. And it makes kind of everyone who's on the who has the potential to develop nuclear weapons more likely to do so because they don't want to be the ones abiding by this treaty while everyone else is breaking it. And so when the U.S. does something like this, signs a, an agreement that provides some reassurance that reduces the risk that South Korea is going to want to build up its own latent capability, that's good news for not having Saudi Arabia pursue nuclear weapons, for not having Turkey pursue nuclear weapons, because it strengthens that overall regime. There's some echoes here, I think, of the nuclear submarine agreement with, uh, with Australia um, that we've talked about previously on this, on this podcast, where it, you know the agreement is for different stuff, right? So it's not uh, about placing nuclear weapons in Australia. It's uh, about providing submarine technology to Australia. But the upshot of it is we're reassuring Australia in the face of a potential risk from China that we're tightening this alliance and we're providing some real capability. And this is this reassurance kind of goes to the bigger picture story of trying to tamp down the danger that these countries will kind of seek a latent capability in order to hedge their bets. Um, and so I, I think like overall, I like the direction of this policy because I think reassurance of this kind is kind of a low cost way of keeping a lid on nuclear proliferation. That I, you said it all. I, I, I agree with that. And actually I was thinking about, I, I like how you brought up your book because if I remember correctly, any chance I get, any chance I get, and it's Mark. been a while since I looked at it. I mean, normally every, every couple of days I read it, I reread it, but I sure. haven't done that in a couple of weeks. So, um, but I, I, you know, you're you're sort of uh, optimistic about the South Korea case, I feel like, right? Because it, it it's 
South Korea looks out at the success of the NPT in the sense of like seeing what other members, what other you know signatories to the institution uh, do. Like, do they do they follow it uh, and all that kind of stuff? And so, I would expect that you would predict with with South Korea that they would be strongly in favor of staying in the NPT, despite the fact that they have these domestic pressures, right? So, and, and you're right. I looked at what you were talking. I pulled up a poll. Something like 70% of, of people in South Korea supported the idea of either having South Korea make its own nuclear weapons or have the U.S. give it some and, and place them, you know, in South Korean uh, uh, land, territory. Um, but I would I would expect you to argue that you know despite this and that those are those are big numbers that South Korea is pretty happy with the compliance record of the NPT and that's a reason for them uh, to stay in it. Furthermore, they don't want to be uh, in the group of states uh, <laughs> that you know gets out of the NPT. I wouldn't think right because that would also uh, number one signal you know their their sort of you know level of you know, reputation and whether they are trustworthy and all that kind of stuff. But also that would be a signal to, to North Korea. I would think that you know. This is this is a serious like we're we're getting we're going in like we're going to get a nuclear weapon. And then, you know, uh, the signal that that sends to North Korea might be very antagonistic. So I in thinking about your book in, in, in South Korea. I think this is actually a pretty good case for you. And I think that, you know, the fact that they're they're uh, not pursuing these these weapons, I think kind of works for your theory. Am I wrong? Yeah, I, I mean, I think South Korea is like the front line for MPT credibility. So yeah. here's a country that has an enemy. We're really close to it, right? Right across the border, within shooting distance of, of Seoul, that has nuclear weapons, that has bailed on this treaty, that developed nuclear weapons and threatens those threatens South Korea with nuclear weapons every day. And so if this country can hold the line, then I think that sends a real message of strength for the treaty. And so it's worth, you know, risking drawing additional attention to U.S. nuclear weapons and foreign policy in order to help South Korea hold that line. Because once South Korea folds and decides, you know, at the threat from North Korea is too great, I, I think I think South Korea would prefer to stay within the treaty, would prefer to not develop nuclear weapons, as long as it thinks it can provide for its own security without its own nuclear deterrent. And so anything the United States can do to kind of strengthen that hand, I think, I think is useful. If South Korea decided to go nuclear because it couldn't handle that threat without its own nuclear deterrent. I think that sends a strong signal of weakness about the regime and the treaty. And we would see, you know, I like to use the other dominoes fall, right? And not in the way we usually talk about proliferation cascades, like, you know, well, Iran gets nuclear weapons, so Saudi Arabia gets nuclear weapons to counter Iran. So, you know, some other country gets nuclear weapons to counter Saudi Arabia. Not that kind of a cascade, but the kind of cascade that you create when the global regime, the restrictions on pursuing these weapons starts to break down and, and countries start to see the cracks in the regime and think, well, if these other countries are doing it, wouldn't it make sense for me to do it too? Um, and so I think this is really where the where the rubber meets the road for, for the regime's credibility. And so I'm happy to see the administration do what it can to solidify that. There will be people who will say that this is damaging to the NPT. Uh, because it, you know, reinforces the importance of nuclear weapons. It kind of blurs the line between, well, we're not providing nuclear weapons to South Korea, but we're we're docking there, right? So there are nuclear weapons now um, in in the region, and it kind of emphasizes the role of nuclear weapons. And we prefer to move to a stance where, um, you know, countries didn't have to kind of brandish their nuclear weapons to to provide for their own security. But I think in this case, uh, if South Korea were to seriously consider building up that nuclear capability, that would be very damaging and we should do whatever we can to avoid it. Okay. I have one last question for you, Jeff, on this topic. And I, and it's how 
how do we think North Korea uh, is looking at this uh, announcement, right? Because I, I could see sort of two different hot takes, right? On the one hand, you know, it's it's the United States is basically reaffirming its extended deterrence, saying if North Korea does anything to South Korea, we got your back. You know, that's that's a sort of short version of it. Um, and that's that's not great for North Korea in the sense that it's it's antagonistic. It's threatening. It's basically the United States saying we will we will step in and attack. So they can't they can't love that. On the other hand, this does sort of imply kind of recognition that North Korea's nuclear program uh, is for real. It's not going anywhere. Like this idea that, you know, through summitry, like the Trump administration could somehow convince uh, North Korea to give up the nuclear program. Things have not gone in that direction with the Biden administration. It's, it's hard to see like any sort of argument being made to the North Koreans to give up the nuclear program. So this kind of also reaffirms in a strange way. Uh, the existence and uh, importance of North Korea's nuclear program. And North Korea might look at this and say, yep, we did. We made the right decision. Uh, we need to keep on, you know, developing more weapons, more sophisticated weapons and so on and so forth. On the other hand, may, I think we have three hands now, but on the, on the other hand, <clears throat> North Korea might also be looking at this in a positive way, um, given what the agreement could have included. I mean, you, you talked about this, right? It's like the United States is not saying we're going to give you nuclear uh, weapons. South Korea is not saying we're going to develop our own nuclear weapons, right? And so from a defensive perspective, North Korea might actually look at this announcement and say, well, I don't love the reaffirmation of extended deterrence. It's a lot better than it could have been. Uh, and so therefore, I, I feel a little bit more secure than I did yesterday, given what the counterfactual, you know, might have might have been if this agreement had gone a different direction. So I'm just curious, do you have a hot take on how you think uh, North Korea is thinking about this and, and, you know, might respond to it? Yeah, my take is that North Korea is not going to like this and is going to respond accordingly. And I haven't seen yet any statements coming out of North Korea. So, you know, I, there's a risk here that that my that my take is wrong. But I think. Uh, the clear target of this action is North Korea's behavior. And so North Korea is going to see it that way. I think there was a statement along with the announcement of this agreement. Here I'm reading from Bloomberg. President Joe Biden stressed that a North Korean nuclear attack on the U.S. and its allies would be the end of Kim Jong-un's regime. And, and that as he announced this, this new initiative, right? And so it's, it's coupled with a little bit of rhetoric against, against North Korea. And North Korea will see it as a provocation, uh, or at least behave as if they see it as a provocation. It, it'll very likely go that way. But I think you're right. It does kind of start to shift U.S. policy a little bit in terms of recognizing North Korea's nuclear weapons as like a thing we have to deal with. And one of the, the kind of big criticisms of U.S. policy toward North Korea over the last five, 10 years is that it's it's living in a dream world. This idea that we're somehow going to get North Korea to agree to give up its weapons that are you know very clearly entrenched in how it thinks about its own security and that we need to shift U.S. policy to a stance of deterrence and containment as we've done for every other country that's that's developed nuclear weapons over the years. And the longer we persist in our dream state of thinking that we can somehow change North Korea's mind about North Korea, about its nuclear weapons, well, we're risking some kind of miscalculation that leads to conflict, that we need to shift to a more of a deterrence stance. And we are capable of deterring North Korea. A, a, a nuclear exchange with North Korea will be the end of North Korea. There's no doubt about it. And so it is, I, I do think North Korea is deterrable. And so we, we should be focused on that. And to the extent that this kind of a reassurance of South Korea puts us more on a realistic footing with regard to North Korea, I think that's also a good, a good thing. So uh, you disagree with um, Vipin's idea of a, a tactical nuclear strike on Guam, let's say, might not necessarily mean 
the end of the Kim Jong-un regime? No, I, I, I agree with Vipin's argument that there is a rational basis for North Korea to use nuclear weapons to try to deter the U.S., but I don't think it would work. Okay. <laughs> and I, and I, I think, but I, from the perspective of North Korea, there is a way you can kind of rationalize the use of nuclear weapons. And the, for those not familiar with this story, the idea is that North Korea could use tactical nuclear, nuclear weapons on South Korea and the United States uh, on troops nearby, thus kind of blunting a U.S. conventional attack, while at the same time holding back nuclear weapons that could be launched at the United States homeland as a deterrent for further escalation. And the idea here is that as long as those are held back, the U.S. will think twice about nuking North Korea and um, being done with it. But I think the use of nuclear weapons, any nuclear weapons, is going to result in a catastrophic response from the United States. Um, that's just my my personal view. Vivian may, may know more about this than I do, but this is a kind of a little bit of a of a, a sideline debate in, in my little world of <laughs> nuclear deterrence. <laughs> sideline is a good way of putting it. I like that. Uh, let's uh, try to take on another question. So this one is from Ashley from Minneapolis. And Ashley sa- asks, is there a way to distinguish advanced deepfake technology from reality? And how might that affect international security? That's a great question, Ashley. I, so I, this is, I, I'm not an expert in this, in this technology. I, I will say, having seen some of the de- deepfake attempts uh, that have sort of been, you know, on TikTok and, and various other places on the internet, I am actually very impressed. There was this one uh, I looked at the other day, which is like a, a Tom Cruise fake, deep fake thing. And it was incredibly impressive. Marcus, should you just explain very briefly what deepfakes are for, for, for those in our audience who might not be aware? Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, you know, you, you should probably do this, but the, uh, the novice understanding of, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, deepfake technology uh, is when you sort of manipulate uh, images or video or audio to make it seem very much like it's coming from an entity that is not actually coming from. So you can use technology uh, to create the appearance that uh, Tom Cruise is having a conversation with you and discussing you know, his latest movie, and it turns out that he didn't do any of those things and the computer is generating all of these images. Uh, is that, that more or less yeah, correct? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, okay. And I think, you know, you could, you could imagine, like, you know, bad deepfakes are kind of easy to, to recognize, and uh, good deepfakes are actually kind of hard to recognize, at least from a human being. So I, I, I'll let you talk about, Jeff, about whether computers can differentiate, differentiate these things and what that might mean. Um, I do think that scholars of diplomacy have actually been thinking about this for a while, so uh, not necessarily in the deepfake way, but there's been a lot of discussion in, in sort of di- diplomacy scholarship about can you trust uh, information that's transmitted through things like fax machines or things like, uh, you know, video, video conferencing and, and stuff like that. And so there's been sort of worry about the use of not necessarily AI to sort of fool people, um, but what it might mean if we get to a point where basically anybody on the Internet could create uh, a message from a leader of some country and somehow get, get it into the proper channels where somebody might see it and think it, it was real. You could imagine a crisis situation. This would be particularly uh, horrible if you uh, had a, a, a leader sort of see a video from some another leader thinking it was legitimate, making decisions based on that. Um, and you know, that could, that could be very chaotic and and go horribly wrong. There's lots of things that would have to happen 
to be in that position. I mean, the existence of a video of a leader saying something that's not true is one thing. You'd have to get that into the hands of the other leader uh, and they would have to believe it and all kinds of stuff. So there's lots of like a hundred different steps that would have to happen, but the potential is there. And that's, and that's very scary. And the question is like, what, what can we do about it? One of the solutions I know, Jeff, that that's been proposed is a technological one where you create technology to kind of figure out whether these things are real or not. But my understanding is that it's not necessarily a perfect solution. Is that right? Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm personally pessimistic about technology as a solution to this technology. And, it, you know, there are parallels here to the AI stuff that we've been talking about uh, all season because the folks behind ChatGPT at OpenAI, they actually developed a tool to try to identify when papers or, or whatever has been written with AI. So the idea is that like one one worry that professors have about about uh, AI tools is that students are just going to write their papers with AI and, and they're not going to be doing any writing and they're going to submit it. And that's kind of a form of plagiarism. And so to um, kind of lessen this fear, OpenAI developed this tool where you can run student papers through this tool and it'll identify whether it's been written with AI. And the fact of the matter is it's not particularly accurate. And I think the odds are it gets less and less accurate over time because anything you can do to kind of identify the AI technology you could use to kind of build AI that could defeat the identification technology. So if there is a, a worthwhile way of developing deepfakes now, I wouldn't expect that to persist as the tools for, for making deepfakes get better and has knowledge of the detection algorithms that are out there, it seems like a fairly straightforward thing to train deepfake technology to defeat deepfake detection technology. So I think the fighting fire with fire idea here is probably not going to work. And we're going to need, at least in the long term, other kinds of mechanisms for dealing with deepfakes. Right. And so there's some people uh, who have argued that the solution here is not technological, but rather sort of political <clears throat> or, or even you know, social to some extent, uh, meaning we've we faced in the past situations where we had new technologies develop and could theoretically be very disruptive. And one thinks about like nuclear weapons to, to get back to what we were just talking about as one of these examples, right? So you have nuclear weapons are developed and it's a game changer because once this technology is created, you can't really defeat it with technology itself. There, although there have been attempts uh, to do that, but you can't really, you know, address the problem with technology. So you, so you do what you, you know, the next best thing you create institutions, you create like the NPT, you get together and you, you have a set of like agreements, uh, sometimes formal, sometimes informal about the use of, of nuclear weapons and building them and so on and so forth. That type of argument. And I've, I've seen actually a lot of people now kind of make that argument that we need like an NPT for uh, deep fakes and AI and stuff like that strikes me as, is kind of difficult because like, first of all, the actors who are participating in these things are basically like, you know, people that are living in their, their parents' basement. They're not, you know, big you know, countries, you know, creating <laughs> nuclear programs. So that, that's the most obvious uh, difference. But it's also, you know, the, the, the ubiquity of deep fakes potentially versus nuclear weapons, which require a long time. And the, the Iranian uh, case, like it illustrates this, right? There's a lot, lot of sort of like know-how and uh, material that's not easy to get and things you have to do the material to make a nuclear weapon. That doesn't exist with AI and deepfakes. I mean, it's like you can do this, like basically anybody could do it to varying levels of, of, of success. So I, I'm, I'm not sold on the idea that the NPT is the way forward, but I do agree that some type of like global governance solution is probably the thing that's going to, 
gonna you know be required here i just don't know what it looks like if it's not the npt i don't know exactly what it is yeah i'm afraid i have a more pessimistic take i i I think the the prospects for some kind of control scheme for technology like this are very very poor and so i think the result is going to be a little bit of chaos that people are going to put these things out we're going to have to become more skeptical this is going to really aid in disinformation and misinformation campaigns where actors can put a video out there of some leader saying something and there's some portion of like the U.S. population that's going to just believe that uh, because it kind of goes to their priors. There's political polarization in this country and it is going to be very difficult to combat that stuff. And I, I think probably there's not a technological solution and probably there's not a kind of global international agreement solution. And we're all just going to have to kind of learn to live with these kind of technologies being out there and and just being kind of more skeptical of what we're seeing on the on the internet that's very pessimistic yeah yeah i'm sorry i don't have a i mean it's also a reason though why good old-fashioned traditional diplomacy is likely <laughs> to probably stick around right it's like yeah. the, the the more if you're face to face you can't be deep this is great for face to face right yeah. because i mean until we can create holograms uh, that appear to be as real as like in person. And I'm sure one day we will get there. Uh, you know, it's like there's, there's going to be value in, in physically going and meeting somebody and like shaking their hand and talking to them and realizing I'm talking to an actual human being here, not some computer generated deep fake. Uh, so I do think that that's and I, and I have to say, I, I think that the the, the level of uh, worry at the highest levels of diplomacy is probably not like I'm, I'm less concerned about like a video from Putin you know, saying, you know, we're going to we're going to launch a nuclear attack in, in 10 minutes or something like that. I, that concerns me less, although if you start thinking going down that road, it should it should concern you. But it concerns me less than what you talked about, which is like the disinformation campaigns and the, the effect on just you know everyday people and so on and so forth. But nevertheless, it's a problem for diplomacy as well. And so I think that, you know, having that good old fashioned face to face physical interaction might be, you know, one of the ways if you can't deal with the technology, you just you sideline the technology and just do it the old-fashioned way and go meet the person. Yeah, or institutionalized mechanisms for risk reduction, which we already have, but which, as we've talked about a number of times, sometimes fail just when you need them the most. So things like hotlines that 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 are more secure links between individuals where you can be sure that the person you're talking to is the person that you uh, want, to, want to be talking to. Yeah. I think we have time for maybe a, just one more quick one. So there's a question from Xavier from Sandusky, Ohio. And Xavier asks, is sports diplomacy still viable today? Uh, He says he can't think of many examples of it recently, especially since the NBA's progress in China um, was halted by uh, the Sixers GM, Daryl Morey, tweeting in support of Hong Kong's freedom. Marcus, I know you have some work on sports diplomacy, or at least you think it's a thing. So, I do. Um, I do have some work on this. Yes, <laughs> I'm actually working on. A, Maybe you can talk this out this one. Uh, yeah, I, I have a, a project at the moment on looking at the relationship between the United States and Japan through the lens of baseball, and uh, the sports diplomacy angle here is thinking about the ways in which various exchanges, you know, at the professional leagues, at the sort of like you know little league World Series, all of these different sort of exchanges of uh, players and coaches and journalists and scouts. What that might do or mean uh, for the political relationship between the, the United States and, and Japan. The, the, the backstory to all of this is that sports diplomacy is kind of premised on this idea 
that if you have interactions at uh, sort of lower levels of, we talk about sort of lower levels of analysis or different things that are apolitical or non-political, you might be able to generate sort of goodwill uh, and feelings of, of sort of warmth, warmth is a strange word to use, but feelings of, of sort of like less antagonism about the other side because you see people interacting and having a good time and not, not hating one another. Uh, and there's been a lot of research on this. I mean, the most famous example, I think, is a so-called, you know, ping pong, ping pong diplomacy that occurred in the 1970s between the United States and China. Uh, a lot of people argue that that was a salient moment of sort of like the thawing of relations uh, between the two countries. And it basically allowed, you know, much more, you know, political uh, uh, communication and integration between the two sides and Nixon's visit to, to China and so on and so forth. Um, some people make the argument that actually... Uh, sports diplomacy is an effect rather than a cause. And so you might say, well, wait a second, you know, lots of things have to be in place before you ever get, you know, ping pong players going to China. Uh, and that's an indication that the relations were already thawing. And so therefore, uh, sports diplomacy is not actually doing a whole lot. So what, what I like about this, though, is that there's a sort of grand kind of theoretical debate in the literature about uh, whether sports diplomacy has any effect or whether it's a cause or whatever. And at the same time, you have actual people, human beings, doing these exchanges, and you can sort of correlate what's going on in the sports world with the political uh, dimensions as well. So all that to say, one of the things we're doing in the project that I've been working on is uh, several things, but one of them is to figure out whether or not we do find correlations between you know, increases in baseball exchanges between the United States and Japan and you know, cooperative behaviors broadly understood uh, in the political relationship? Do we see better relations, to simplify things, when we have more exchanges, or is there no effect, or is that, you know, go the other direction? So that's that's kind of one of the things that we're looking at. It ties into what we were talking about at the beginning of the pod, uh, because the theoretical sort of, like, linchpin to all of this has to do with social identity. The idea is that if you have individuals interacting with one another. Uh, there's something in psychology called the contact hypothesis. You have these interactions with, with one another and people that you might have previously had you know, prejudice against. Uh, thought that they were the enemy, thought that they represented, you know, the bad guys or whatever. If you have positive interactions with them, and it can be over like literally anything, including playing sports or playing chess or playing in a band together or whatever, you see a reduction in, in prejudice. So one of the things that was happening during the Cold War, some people were making the argument, what we need to be doing is sending people to the Soviet Union, sending students to the Soviet Union. We need to have you know, people from the Soviet Union coming here, getting exchanges that are occurring at universities and high schools and grade schools, because you can kind of build better relations from the ground up. This is kind of the way that it, that it works. Another way of saying, let's have that out-group uh, you know, sort of disintegrate a little bit and have the in-group widen so that you know the folks that are going to Japan to play baseball start to see themselves not as these are the other, these, these people are different than me, but what we share in common. And, and the, the, the important part here is that by playing a game together, it might seem sort of silly and superficial, you do, the theoretical bet is, see the humanity in the other side and realize these guys are actually a lot like I am and we enjoy uh, similar things. So there is a social identity uh, theory to all of this. The last thing that I'll say is that, you know, one of the, the sort of challenges here is that you have to show that sports diplomacy, if, if you want to make these types of arguments, actually does something, right? You have to say like, okay, Professor Holmes, I, I grant you 
that a person going to Japan who might, let's say, even have, you know, sort of anti-Asian uh, attitudes or might even be racist, I could buy the idea that maybe if they spent a week in Tokyo playing baseball with, with Japanese uh, kids, maybe they'll come back and have a, a slightly better feeling towards, uh, towards Japan and Japanese people. But it's hard to see how that scales up to the to the state level, right? It's also hard to see how that would be lasting, right? So if I go to Tokyo, yeah, maybe six months later, I'm back to my, you know, sort of like racist views or my, my views of, of being prejudiced against them. Um, and this is a significant challenge. And this is really difficult to, to sort of unpack. And you have to make the theoretical claim, I think, that you're comfortable thinking about things that are happening at the ground level, building up over time and, you know, having some some kind of political effect at, at higher levels. It can't happen overnight, certainly, but it is sort of the basis of lots of different um, ideas out there. The whole idea of doing international exchanges where you have, you know, corporate CEOs come from Europe to spend time in the United States. The idea of having study abroad is, is partially premised on this idea that if you send students to another country, they're going to come back with less prejudice towards that, that place. There is a little bit of, of a sort of theoretical uh, risk that you have to take and that this is you can sort of make the leap from the ground up to the higher levels. But if you're willing to make that leap and you're willing to say, I think that this has uh, uh, some political effects, then it's a fascinating uh, thing to study. So the answer to the question, sports diplomacy is alive. Sports diplomacy has been alive for a very long time. The NBA, maybe next time we can talk about the NBA in China, because I think it's an interesting story that's, that's slightly different than what I'm talking about here, but we can get, we can get into that. Uh, so, yeah, sports diplomacy is a thing. I think it's an important thing. I encourage students to look into it. I encourage students to get involved. I think it's actually one of the, the cool things that we do in international relations. So much of what we talk about is depressing and pessimistic. We just talked about nuclear weapons. You're pessimistic uh, about the situation with, with uh, North Korea. I'm kind of pessimistic about Sports diplomacy is a, is a sort of bright, shiny star of positive stuff that we get to talk about in international relations, which is, which is kind of rare. Would you say that there's a lot of empirical backing for the idea that sports diplomacy has led to, like, actual diplomacy? The empirical data that currently exists tends to be sort of qualitative case study type of, of arguments, right? So there, there have been many books written about the, the U.S.-China um, uh, case. And you can find, you know, you go back and look at, at some of what scholars have done, trying to piece together the, the process by which you get, you know, uh, Nixon to go go to China. Like, what were the things that had to be in place? What role does sports diplomacy play in, 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 in that process? It's, it's very difficult to show, right? This is the, the, the significant challenge here is in a robust way showing that there's empirical support for the theories that have been developed about sports diplomacy. I admit that. But Jeffrey, this is exactly the type of thing that we should be doing, right? So that's a challenge. It's an empirical challenge. So let's go meet that challenge. Let's not say, oh, it's too complicated. We're never going to be able to show. But, but no, let's go collect the data. Let's see if we can find correlations between you know, when exchanges are up and what's going on in the world. So this is, a, this is an empirical challenge that I welcome. And my students who are involved in this project uh, welcome it too. And I, I think we'll get there. I think we'll eventually we'll be able to show uh, the effect. Do you think there are sports-specific effects like if you if you if you have like hockey uh, going on and people are getting like high sticked and like crushed into the boards, do they leave with a better feeling about their opponent versus versus something like table tennis or uh, or baseball where like, yeah, you can see there's an opponent, but you don't actually have to like physically attack them? Well, so in in, the, in some aspects or some sort of uh, versions of the contact hypothesis, like physical interaction is actually better. 
right? So like <laughs> like rugby, for example, is one of yeah. the best ones because they're like wrestling with each other and they're you know. So like there there are there's some argument to be made that actually when you have this sort of like war on the field that you're going to you're going to actually develop bonds with those people in a way that you probably don't in like tennis for example where you're separated by a court maybe like in basketball it's sort of like the mid version of this where like you get a little bit of contact but you're you know you're close together but you're not like you know wrestling so yeah there are there are some uh, people that make arguments that like the more kind of like physical interaction you have on the field or in the court or whatever does have more of an effect uh, at least at the individual level and the group level, right? It's hard to go and say like, you know, okay, this is a state behavior. But at the at the lower levels, yeah, you can see more of it. Because I'm watching the hockey playoffs right now, and I'm not getting the sense that more interaction between these teams is making them like each other more. <laughs> um, it's interesting. I think that their in-group, though, is so solidified in the sense of like they have that their, their team in-group, but then they also are the in-group of like professional NHL players. So my sense is that, yeah, they probably hate each other right now, but when the series is over, you know, there there was um, – this is a famous example of the 2004 World Series. You know, not World Series. The, the AL uh, – the Red Sox and Yankees were playing in the American League Championship Series, right? And this is when the, the Red Sox came back after being down 3 nothing. By the way, yeah. students, if you, if you don't know the story about this because you, you weren't born yet, go look at 2004 <laughs> uh, Red Sox-Yankees. In any event, there's all these pictures of Red Sox players and Yankees players having dinner in Boston the night after the game. So, like, they, they hate each other, we're trying to kill you, beat you, blah, blah, blah. And then they're out having fun later that night. Yeah. So the point is, is that the, the in-group is certainly Red Sox, certainly Yankees, but it's also, we're part of this professional baseball league, and we, it's, we know it's a job, and we can relate to each other on that level as well. This, again, power of social identity theory. All right. Well, I think we should leave it there. You know, we're, we're going to kind of keep going with this, this podcast, uh, maybe on a slightly less regular basis. During the summer. Since the semester has ended. But, um, but we'll, be, we'll be talking to you again. So we encourage you to stay subscribed in your podcast player of choice, even if it's Spotify. That, that's fine, too. And send us a note and let us know what we should be talking about at cheaptalkpod at gmail.com or www.speakpipe.com slash cheaptalk. Marcus, it was great talking to you again. It's been a pleasure, as always. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next time. See you in the next pod. Do you see this one about the treasure ship? I, oh, I didn't scroll down that far. There's so many of these. Can you possibly tell the treasure ship recently found out the cost of Columbia? Uh. <laughs> that, cool, <laughs> that is a cool topic. I know nothing about that. Was that a thing? Like, is that real? I mean, I, I doubt. I mean, why would someone make this up? I don't know. You should talk a little about what will be on the Government 329 final exam in great detail. <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs>